Good morning, Life Point Riverdale. How are you? <laughs> Good. Uh, thanks for not skipping town for fall break. <laughs> Goodness, man. No, I'm just kidding. Um, obviously, I'm not Kyle. My name is Jordan Rabin. I'm one of the ministers on staff here. I've been to Riverdale before, and so I, I, I do look out and I see familiar faces, uh, but I don't get out of here super often, so I know that this, this church is growing, there's new families, and so people I haven't seen. So um, uh, I'm very thankful and honored to be here. Uh, your fearless leader is in Belgium. He is in a distant land across the ocean. Uh, he, you know, uh, Kyle and I share a particular camaraderie on the LifePoint staff because we are the only two staff members to have uh, spent time serving at our LifePoint Brussels campus. Obviously, he and Amy started the campus, and then uh, my wife Morgan and I came there, and I served as a teaching pastor from 2018 to 2021. So we got to do COVID European style, and it was not fun. Um, <clears throat> and so let me just say, um, you know, um, I, I've seen firsthand the uh, blessings of the way that God has used Kyle and Amy Goa. Uh, you here at LifePoint Riverdale, I, I know you know this, but let me tell you again, you are blessed by God to have Kyle as your pastor. Uh, Kyle is a gift from God to you. And so... Um, Man, I, I, I've not worked with this campus a lot, but I know even serving a few years after him in LifePoint Brussels, uh, we got to see firsthand the fruit. You know, a lot of times in ministry, you, um, you work and work and plant seeds for fruit that you never get to see grow. And so I got to serve in a church that was where it was and what it was because of the fruit of Kyle and Amy's ministry there, the way that, the God, the way that God used them, the Holy Spirit worked through them. And so I know the same is true here. I, I, I was saying to the team uh, before service started, man, whether, I guess, whether in Brussels or Riverdale today, I guess I'm just fated to be in Kyle, try to fill Kyle going shoes. And so, and then I know here, you guys had David McCain before Kyle. So uh, pressure's on today, I guess. Uh, so uh, with that all being said, I, I do ha- want to get a couple things, um, say a couple things up front. If you're a guest with us, thank you for being here. Uh, there's a card that looks like this in the seat backs in front of you. Um, we'd love for you to fill one of these out and just let us know who you are and that you were here today. Um, one thing that we promise won't happen is that you filling out a card like this one doesn't put you on the email list. We're not going to spam your inbox. I think you'll probably just get one email tomorrow thanking you for coming. But if you're a member or regular attender, this is also like your one-stop shop to let us know how we can pray for you. So if you want to talk about membership or baptism or you have prayer requests that you want the Riverdale team to pray for tomorrow, uh, fill one of these out, drop it in the basket on your way out or hand it to one of us personally. We always prefer that. Um, and let us know how we can how we can serve you and help you. Um, so um, uh, you also have Fall Festival coming up, uh, and so Fall Festival is going to be on October 23rd from four to seven here at the Riverdale campus. Uh, it's a great opportunity to invite friends and neighbors with you, but I'm sure there's also plenty of service opportunities that we still need. So get with someone from the LifePoint Riverdale team afterwards. Uh, click on that. Maybe if you have access to that. Um, uh, sign up genius. He, he has all the answers. And so um, uh, let us know, man, it's a great opportunity for you and your D group, you and your small group to serve together. Um, and uh, man, that's a great, one of our greatest outreach events and opportunities that we have. Um, so I have a couple jobs at LifePoint. <clears throat> and so one of my jobs is, so normally I'm at the Stewart's Creek campus on Sundays. I serve there as the associate minister to that campus under Pastor R.C. Ford. Uh, some of you may know R.C., some of you may not. R.C.'s a campus pastor for the Stewart's Creek campus. And so he's also phenomenal. Um, and so I love that. I love serving there. But another thing that I do is I oversee, I direct something called LifePoint Institute. Uh, and the reason that LifePoint Institute is so special, and, and I bring it up now, is that um, LifePoint Riverdale, you guys have really been at the tip of the spear in actually implementing LifePoint Institute. Um, Kyle basically came to me about a month before we launched it everywhere else and said, hey, I'm just going to start this and there's nothing you can do to stop me. Um, and so, of course, no, I didn't want to stop him or anything. I was very excited. And so I know that some of you um, have been coming to the, the Wednesday night class that Kyle has been doing. Maybe I know I've talked with others who your D group or your life group, you've been going through the classes online because we do have access to these classes online, by the way, if you go to lifepointchurch.org institute. Um, 
And uh, um, so thank you, Riverdale. I, I do want to thank this church because you guys have really, we've been learning a lot by watching the rollout here at Riverdale because all the other campuses are just a little bit behind you guys. And so we've been able to kind of tweak things for other campuses based on what we've learned from, from you guys. And so um, if you've been a part of the class Authentic Christianity, which is the first LifePoint Institute class that we've rolled out, uh, then you'll hopefully be excited to know that on October 19th here at Riverdale, um, you, uh, you're going to be starting the second LifePoint Institute class called How Should We Live? So Authentic Christianity is a survey of basic Christian teaching that uses the Apostles' Creed. How Should We Live is, I'm going to let you guess what that class is about. It's about how we should live. And it uses the Ten Commandments as our, as our framework for that class. And so we're going to get into all sorts of different ethical issues, a lot of practical stuff for your life. It's going to be great. I'm told that it's in the family room. I don't know where the family room is, but I imagine that you know where the family room is. And so, and I, I don't think it's that way. So it's probably over there somewhere. And so um, October 19th, 645 in the family room, maybe get with Mary or someone. I don't know how you, or do you have to register for that? Well, however you register, someone, someone will make it abundantly clear how to register for that at a later date. Um, and so um, with all that out of the way, Let's get into the word together. Uh, you know, I, um, before we get to that, I, I recently saw a video. I think I was like scrolling through Facebook or something, and I saw a video of this woman who was like really distraught. She was really upset, and she was um, talking about her student loan debt. Now, I know this can be kind of political right now. It's kind of like a political subject, so just breathe for a minute. We're not going to go there. I'm just telling you what I saw, okay? She was very upset about her student loan debt. Um, and I, I, I don't know if she made the video for, like, her family, or maybe she has, like, a small social media following or something. I don't know, but somehow it landed on my timeline. And I was watching it, and she, <clears throat> she was really upset, and she was talking about how she took out $80,000 of student loan debt a lot of money. Um, and she had been paying off her student loan debts for the past 10 years. Just for 10 years, I've been making these monthly payments, these huge monthly payments. It's kind of been like a huge strain on me. And she said, I went to check my balance today to see how much I still owed. She's like, guys, I still, I can't remember the exact number, but she goes, it was somewhere like around like $75,000 she still owed after paying for 10 years. And she was like, What's going on? How could this be? Well, I don't think she took into consideration the amount of interest on her loans. Something similar happened to me last year when I was looking at our, I've never had a car payment until recently. And so I was looking at our car payment. I was like, what? Like, this is, this is like more than we actually like, like, like bought the car for. How, how would I owe more than this? It was crazy. And so I didn't take into consideration the interest. Maybe with your mortgage, you made a similar mistake where you didn't factor in how much the interest would be. Well, Here's the point of me telling you this. Um, we've made it clear over the past several weeks as we've been surveying Colossians that there were lots of false teachings and false ideologies swirling around the Colossian church. And this is what the false teachings, the false ideology of these false teachers in Colossae were like. They caused you to work tirelessly only to discover that you were still crushed by your debt that you'd have to work to pay off something only to find that you're still crushed by the debt that you owe. So over the past several weeks, uh, we've really been talking about the false teachers who were teaching Gnosticism, which if you remember, Kyle has explained it to you. It's sort of this idea that there's this sort of hidden or higher knowledge that we have to, that, that may, maybe faith in Jesus is like an entryway into this real deep higher knowledge that we have to have access to, that Jesus himself isn't really enough. It's Jesus plus Knowledge, Jesus plus this, this new insight into all these spiritual things. They were really the first heretics that the church had to deal with. Um, but in this section of the epistle, Paul is sort of turning his sights away from the Gnostics, and he's looking at another group who was threatening the, the Colossian church, and they were called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. So last week we listened to Shai. Shai Lynn talked to us. Um, he was talking about the gospel and ethnic unity, but he preached out of Galatians and he also talked about the Judaizers. The Judaizers were uh, really, really affecting the church in Galatia. And so uh, this group was telling the church that there were certain Jewish customs that had to be observed alongside faith in Jesus. Their theology was a little bit too mathematical, right? It was like Jesus plus Jewish customs. Jesus plus, you know, Jewish holidays, Jesus plus Jewish dietary laws, Jesus plus 
circumcision. Now, the first century church was, in a lot of ways, like a small child. They were very vulnerable to false teaching, very vulnerable to the threats surrounding it. This is almost certainly why God in his wisdom gifted the ministry and life of the apostles to this age in the church because they needed it. Uh, they, they, their, their vulnerability culturally, theologically, spiritually is what drove the apostle Paul to labor tirelessly for them. So today we're going to be looking at probably what I think is, is probably the most important passage in Colossians. This is certainly the passage I think of whenever I think about the book of Colossians. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. That is Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. I've heard it said that this text is like a rainforest of gospel timber for our hearts. It is a dense, theologically rich account of all that Christ has done for us who have faith in him. Now, I will tell you, this is a very technical passage today, a very technical passage. So if you like very theological messages, if you sort of like the more technical, theology-dense, sort of deeper message, I imagine that you're going to enjoy today. If you don't like that, I don't know what to tell you. I hope that you, I hope that you bear with us. Uh, but I, what I will say is a lot of times the more technical passages oftentimes lead to us discovering the greatest truths. Um, the, the same, I believe is the same person who talked about the gospel timber that I just said a minute ago also has a quote where he says that if you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get gold. And so we're going to be doing some digging today. And I think we're going to hit some gold today in what we see in this passage. So with that being said, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word. And I love that Shai did this last week, so I'm going to do it again. Um, when I finish reading this passage, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe that to be true, you respond with, thanks be to God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in this passage, Paul expounds on who Christ is, what he has done for us, and what it means for us to be in Christ. These are the things that we're going to be, uh, we're going to be seeing. Who Christ is, what he has done for us, and what it means for us to be in Christ. And he teaches us these things in Colossians. He tells these things to the Colossian church so that we, they and we may be rooted in the gospel and unswayed by false teaching. This is the reason Paul wrote this letter, to ground them in the truth of the gospel so that they would be undeterred, unconvinced, unswayed by false teaching. So uh, we're going to see today that as the people of God, we are dead to the world and we are alive in Christ. We are dead to the world and we are alive in Christ. So first, let's look at what it means to be dead to the world. Our text begins with two words, in him, that is in Christ. We cannot blow past these words in an effort to quickly get to everything else that Paul says in this passage. We cannot miss the significance of this statement. You know, we talk so much about being with Jesus we, we want to walk with Jesus. Or maybe we even would say, I want to live for Jesus. But we absolutely cannot forget that we, as the redeemed people of God, are in Jesus. We are in Christ. Theologically, this is called union with Christ. If you are taking notes, please write that down. This is called union with Christ Union with Christ means 
that you have been united or inseparably bound to Jesus through the gospel. To put it a different way, you are one with Christ through your salvation, through the gospel. You have been made one with Christ Jesus. Union is the most common theme in the New Testament when it comes to our relationship to Jesus Christ. The Bible talks, the New Testament talks more about union than any other theological category in how we relate to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul talks more about our union with Christ than he talks about our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, our adoption, or anything else. Union dominates the theology of the New Testament. Unfortunately, though, many Christians today aren't aware of this. We don't know what it means that we've been united to Christ. But the New Testament has over 200 references to our union with Jesus. This would average out to be about one reference per page in most layouts of the New Testament. The reason Paul can say that we have the fullness of God in us, or that we can sing that song, that I have the fullness of God dwelling in me, is not because of anything special about me, but because I have been united to Christ in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. This is also why Paul takes false teaching so seriously. To try to convince the people of Christ to deny Christ would be like trying to convince Christ to deny himself because we are one with Christ. And if we are one with Jesus Christ, then we need not be swayed by the false ideologies of our day, nor should we be deterred by our own sin, our own failings, and our own shortcomings. We're going to talk more about that at the end. We are fully bound up in Jesus Christ, so we can and must stand firmly and confidently in him against all ideologies of sin, wickedness, and evil. So Paul says, remember Colossian church, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then verse 11, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Ah, now we understand why Paul or why uh, Kyle left this week and, and gave the circumcision message to me. Um, <laughs> in the old Testament, God called Abraham to circumcise all males within his household as a sign of God's covenant with his people by cutting away a small piece of flesh as a symbol of their being set apart, separated from the world. This sign was to be kept by all of Abraham's offspring as an everlasting covenant. Now the word circumcise means literally to cut away, which is exactly what the symbol was meant to portray to the world around the Israelites. God's people were to be different from the world. They were to be different, distinct, set apart, holy from the cultures around them. So by cutting away the flesh, the nation of Israel was communicating that they were cut away, separated from the surrounding culture. They were distinct, they were set apart. So Israel practiced circumcision as a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring. However, after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus, his people are no longer marked by the cutting away of flesh, but now the people of Christ are marked by what? What are the people of Christ marked by? What, what would be what distinguishes us from the world? It would be faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the old sign of circumcision was always pointing toward this. See, circumcision had spiritual implications associated with it, but it also had national implications associated with it. It was a single nation, the boys of one nation who received this sign. It also had typological implications to it. Circumcision was pointing toward something, but what was it pointing toward? Well, the removal of flesh and circumcision was ultimately fulfilled by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Jesus's body was cut away from the living, when he died as a sacrifice for our sin, circumcision was foreshadowing the uh, Christ being cut off from the land of the living in order to make us right with him. Now, by faith in his work through the gospel, the Lord circumcises 
our hearts with a spiritual circumcision. This is always the plan. Deuteronomy 30 verse six says that. I'm going, eventually I'm going to circumcise your hearts. Today you might be, you're gonna have circumcision physically, but one day I'm going to circumcise your hearts. I'm gonna change your hearts, which is the era we're living in today. This is why it is not those who are circumcised in the flesh who are in the household of God, but those who are circumcised in the heart by faith. Today, entrance into the kingdom of God, into the community of faith, is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. How do I become part of God's covenant family? It's not by being born the first time to Christian parents. It's by being born again through faith in Jesus Christ, in which I've been united to him. I've been made one with him. This is how you pass from outside the covenant community into it through faith. So this side of the cross, we are not told to circumcise the people of God. I guess you can still do that with your sons if you'd like. But now we're told to baptize them. Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people try to argue that there is a one-to-one correlation between circumcision and baptism. That in the old covenant, we had circumcision. Today, we have baptism, and they are effectively communicating the same thing. This is an error. Baptism is not a continuation of the old covenant sign of circumcision, but rather it is a new sign signifying a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism communicates that we have been united to Jesus Christ. Just as we are submerged beneath the water, so we are submerged into Christ. Just as he was buried and raised again, baptism signifies that we too with Christ have been buried and raised again with him as new creation. Union with Christ is all over the sign of baptism because baptism signifies that we have been born again through faith. This is why here at LifePoint, we dedicate our infants rather than baptize them. Maybe, maybe you, you've wondered why we don't baptize infants here. We don't baptize them until they profess faith in Jesus Christ. There's a reason for this. Some of you might come from a church tradition where you were baptized as an infant. Or maybe you came from a church tradition recently and you baptized your infants. Um, This is called pedo-baptism, child baptism. This is how my family was. Uh, I was baptized as an infant in a Presbyterian church, in a PCA church. Now, obviously not all people who baptize their infants believe the same thing about what that baptism is doing. Obviously, we have uh, our friends in the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and some Lutheran churches who believe that baptism is washing away original sin, that baptism has something to do with our justification. This is absolutely, unequivocally, blatantly false. Baptism does not wash away any sin. Baptism does not make you holier before God than you were before you were baptized. That, that is, baptism is a sign of something God has done. It's not something that does something to you, as much as I value baptism, obviously. But there are many faithful brothers and sisters who baptize their infants, and they do it for the same reason that Israel circumcised their infant boys. <clears throat> They do it as a sign that their children are a part of the covenant community of God. They believe that when children are born to Christian parents, those children are born into the community of faith, not saved. They don't believe their children are born saved, but they believe their children are born as part of the church, part of the covenant community, and therefore receive baptism as a sign that they have been born into the community of faith, the covenant community of God. Now, many people who practice pedo-baptism, get their support from this text, which is ironic to me because I think this passage actually detonates their whole argument. So this is actually where our pedo-baptist brothers and sisters who I love get it wrong. Look, and I'll love to them too. I want to be clear. I was reading a book on parenting yesterday written by a, by a pedo-baptist Presbyterian guy. I, we, I have tons of respect for these guys. I just think they get this issue wrong. So Pado-Baptists claim that circumcision in the Old Testament was replaced by baptism in the New Testament. 
So if we circumcised babies then, we should sprinkle them now. Do you understand why someone might think that? It's not a bad argument. The problem, though, with this is the presence of two words found in verse 12. Look again at verse 12 with me. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Ah, so the sign of circumcision was not anticipating the sign of baptism. You understand what I mean by that? The sign of circumcision was not anticipating the sign of baptism. The sign of circumcision was anticipating the spiritual circumcision that would come through faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism, therefore, is a new sign that is given to those who have been spiritually circumcised. So your spiritual circumcision didn't happen by or because of your parents' obedience. You being brought into the community of faith isn't ultimately because of your parents' faith. It happens through your faith in Christ. You know, I like to say we do baptize infants in this church. We just baptize spiritual infants, people who are recently born again. Uh, it happens by your faith, by your personal faith in Jesus Christ, you died to the world and entered into the covenant community of God. So the Judaizers were telling the Colossians that they had to be physically circumcised in order to separate themselves from the world. But Paul is saying, no, 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 listen, you're misunderstanding what, what circumcision was foreshadowing. What circumcision was foreshadowing was fulfilled in Christ. So today we are dead to the world, not because we have been or I'm sorry, we are dead to the world because we have been united to Christ, not because we have performed any particular action or ritual. And because you are in him, because you are united to Christ, your death to the world was as real as Christ's death on the cross. This means that your old way of living, your old desires, your old passions, your old pursuits, your old self, was buried with Christ in the tomb and a new creation, a new man, a new woman was resurrected with him when he walked out. Paul says this clearly in Romans chapter six. Look at Romans six, verses six through 11. Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, being dead to the world, dead to your sin, that might feel like a stretch to you. You might not feel dead to the world. You might not feel dead to your sin. You might be acutely aware of how deep your sin still goes in your heart. You know certainly the sins that you still struggle with. This might feel like a stretch to you, but I want to comfort you with these words. The reality of your union with Christ gives you assurance that you are dead to the world. And your feelings about that change nothing about the truth of that statement. See, we can have weak faith. We cannot feel like we've been really united to Christ. We, we cannot feel like we've really been separated from the world or, the, or that the old man is dead or that we're, we're a new creation. We might not feel that way. But here's the great thing. God's working in your life is not contingent upon how you feel it's going. <laughs> Did, when, when, when the people of Israel painted the, their doorposts with the blood of the spotless lambs, did the angel of death pass over their homes because they really felt like that blood was gonna work? Or did it pass over their homes because their home was covered with the blood of the lamb? You could have been inside biting your fingernails all night going, I don't, is, this, is this gonna work? Is this gonna work? And guess what? Your kids would be all right the next morning because it's not your confidence. It's not your strength of faith. It's, it's, it's the power of the blood. 
It's the power of what Christ has done. Oftentimes when we doubt our salvation, which we all go through seasons like that, by the way, when we doubt our salvation or we feel like our spiritual life is just a wreck, a disaster, it's because we've turned our eyes inward toward ourselves. And yeah, we're screw-ups. Why wouldn't we feel like total failures when I look at my own life? If I take my eyes off Christ and I begin to look at my own actions, I'm toast because I'll never be godly enough. I'll never be obedient enough. But what I have to do is turn my eyes toward Christ his, and know that his work on my behalf is effective for me regardless of the strength of my confidence in it or the persistence of my struggles with sin. So we're gonna keep exploring this in the next section. Uh, let's talk about what it means to be alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. Look again at verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I love this verse so much. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in the entire New Testament. Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Do you know what it means to be dead in your sin? What does that mean, to be dead in my sin? You know, I had a man who discipled me for several years. He's with the Lord now. I loved him. He was a phenomenal discipler. As I've, you know, gotten older and kind of studied Scripture, we, we disagreed on a couple, uh, on a couple of theological points. And one, I remember one of the things he used to say to me was, well, you know, dead doesn't really mean dead. <laughs> he said, dead just means really incapable. Or I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, like, oh, how did he describe it? Like, um, like, I guess highly incapable is what he'd say. Like, it's just, it's very difficult is what dead means. You know, I think Paul knew how to say really incapable in Greek. Um, I don't think he was at a loss for words and just said, dead, you guys will kind of figure out what I mean. You know what I mean by dead? I, I mean, I don't mean dead here, but I'm writing dead. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's how that went. To be dead in your sins does not mean that you were just indifferent toward God. It doesn't mean that it would have just been really, really tough for you to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that you were really sick with your sin or that I was drowning in a sea of misery and despair and hopelessness. That's not what dead in your sins means. Unlike my dear old discipler used to say, dead really means dead. You were dead. You were as incapable of responding to Jesus as a man in a casket is capable of responding to the people at his funeral. You were as incapable of healing yourself as the person who just flatlined in the hospital is capable of healing himself. We weren't drowning. We were at the bottom of the ocean with a thousand pounds of weight shackled to our feet. That's how hard our hearts toward Christ were. So hard that we would never have reached out to him for salvation. We would have never wanted him. If you sit around waiting for a person who's dead in their sins to want Jesus, you better be prepared for a long wait because it won't happen. They're dead in their sins as you were, as I was. But while we were dead in our sins, God broke through our cold, dead resistance and made us alive together with Christ through faith. I'm sure many of you can remember the moment that you first had faith in Jesus Christ. You heard the gospel preached, and what didn't happen was you, some angel didn't appear and give you, an, like, give you the red pill or the blue pill or give you some sort of option like, all right, what are you going to do? Are you going to believe? Are you going to not? You just believed. You just had faith. One moment you didn't believe, one moment you didn't have faith, and then now you heard the gospel and I believe this. Now you certainly responded to it. You chose to say, yes, I'm gonna follow Jesus, but you only did that because God awakened your heart. See, your faith is not a product of your own cleverness. You weren't just smarter than everyone else. <laughs> and you said, man, I'm gonna hedge my bets and, and stick with Jesus. He seems like the safe option. No, your faith is a gift that God gave you. He opened your eyes while you were dead in your sin. He made you alive. And then you respond to him with belief. You respond to him with faith. You respond to him with repentance and obedience. But it's because God gave life 
to your cold, to our cold, dead hearts. And when that happened, we were joined with Christ so that we died on the cross with him and we resurrected from the dead with him. You are therefore a new creation in Christ Jesus. God is making all things new today. It's not just a future promise. He's making all things new today. When did he start? At the resurrection of his son, the first fruits of the new creation, the first fruits of the kingdom, the firstborn from the dead. And he's been continuing that work of making all things new from Christ to you, to me. With every new person who comes to faith in Christ, the Lord is making all things new. So can you see why Paul is saying all this here? Against all the winds of heresy and false teaching blowing through the Colossian church, Paul is centering them on a reality that is truer than true, giving them an unwavering anchor that's going to keep them firmly rooted by telling them you are one with Christ. You are one with Christ. And if you are one with Christ, then there is nothing left for you to do to make yourself right before a holy and righteous God. Because Christ did all the work and you are in Christ. Therefore, all the work is done. The customs and practices that the Judaizers were advocating were needless because everything we needed for our justification can be found in Jesus Christ himself. This is also why the teaching of the Judaizers was so offensive to Paul. Paul, I mean, Paul was like tilted about the Judaizers. He was very upset with the Judaizers. As a matter of fact, Paul's first epistle, do you know the first epistle Paul wrote? At least the first divinely inspired one. The first epistle that Paul wrote was Galatians, the epistle to the Galatians. And Paul was mad. He was mad when he wrote Galatians because, the Ju- because of the influence of the Judaizers on this church. There was a large Judaizer population there in that church who were leading the, 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 the Christians in Galatia away from the truth of the gospel. Do you know how bad you have to get it wrong that you become responsible for Paul starting his epistle writing ministry? Like imagine you're the guy who got it so wrong that Paul was like, I got to write some letters, man. I got I to start fixing these guys up, man. They, they're, they're messing everything up. What's going on over there? But we see why this, why this is so important. By advocating that there's anything else for us to do to contribute to our justification is to cheapen what Christ did and diminish our union with him. If I stood up here and I told you that you have to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to be baptized. And if you're not baptized, and I mean every single part of you baptizing, if there's one pinky out of that water, it doesn't count. You can't go to heaven. You're going to go to hell. That is wickedness. That is a wicked thing to say. Because now the work of Christ on the cross is no longer good enough. It's that plus this. That is so offensive to Paul that that is what made him begin writing his epistles. And listen, he was mad at Galatia. Every other epistle that Paul writes, Paul begins with, I thank my God for you. I every day, I am overflowing with thanksgiving for you. I'm so encouraged by you. I'm praying for you. Not Galatians. <laughs> Galatians is like, uh, Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, servant all the cousins. Verse three, I am astonished that you are so quickly abandoning the gospel. He, he didn't even do that to the Corinthians. There's a guy in Corinth, like sleeping with his mother-in-law, right? Or stepmom. He was nicer to them than he was to the Galatians. That's how offensive this idea is because you are diminishing, cheapening what Christ has done. And also I'm looking at you saying, well, you haven't really been united to Christ because you still have some stuff that you have to do. This is a wicked thing to say. Jesus alone has done everything that we need for our justification. And Jesus did not only make us alive with him, he also paid our sin debt himself. Look again at verse 14. This is the verse I think of, the main one. I think Colossians 2.14 when I think of Colossians. Colossians 2.14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. 
In the Roman world, criminals, when they were crucified, they would have a sign nailed above their heads detailing their, their offenses, what landed them there. Of course, we're familiar with this. Jesus had the sign above his head. But when it came to Christ, God the Father took our sin and laid it upon him. The bill, the sign that hang above Jesus' head detailing his crimes were our crimes. And every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit was written on a bill and nailed to the cross alongside Jesus Christ. Therefore, now every accusation the enemy brings, every failure that hounds you, every weakness and shame in your life has a nail driven through it. And your union with Jesus Christ solidifies this. Imagine that woman that I spoke about at the beginning of the sermon. Imagine, you know, she's crushed by the debt that she still owes, but let's say she gets married to a billionaire. $80,000 is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket for him. Spending $80,000, that's just Tuesday for him. Imagine if her creditors tried to intimidate her after her marriage. You know, we're going to send this thing to collections. This, is going to be, uh, this ain't going to be good for you. It would be laughable. Because in marrying this man, she became united to him. Her debt became his debt. But his wealth became her wealth. Her debt is no longer a problem because she's been united to a man who's more than capable of paying off her debt a thousand times over. This is what happened to you when you put your faith in Christ. You were united to one who could pay off an infinite amount of sin debt. You may feel like a great sinner, and indeed, you are. Indeed, I am. We are great sinners. But Christ is a greater Savior. And it's important for us to know how great of sinners we are, not that we would be crushed by our shortcomings, but so that we would know how much greater Christ is how much more mercy he has, how much more power and goodness and justice he has than we have sin in us. Life Point Riverdale, you know, the Bible only says God is rich in one thing, mercy. He's rich in a lot of things, but the only thing he cared to tell us he was rich in was mercy. He has more mercy than you have sin. And we have a lot of sin. So if someone tries to add to the gospel, or diminish what Christ has done, or if the enemy tries to throw your sin in the face, which he will do, what, what does Satan mean? Accuser. He is the accuser of the brethren. So when you sin, you feel a little voice in you, you start to feel that pressure, you start, you start to get that, like, get that sweat, look at what you've done. Do you know what you just did? And by the way, do I need to remind you, you just did the same thing last week? Oh, and don't forget about this other thing that you've done too. Look at it. Look at how unworthy you are. Look at how pathetic you are. You can't get over anything, can you? You, 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 you. Is that the voice of the Lord? No. It's the voice of the accuser. I don't think the Holy Spirit is very interested in talking about you. I think he's very interested in talking about Christ. You know who's interested in talking about you? Satan. He likes to throw your sin in your face. He lives to accuse the people of God. But because we've been united to Christ, his accusations against us are laughable. The great reformer and pedo-baptist, Martin Luther, once said, when the devil cast up to us our sin and declares us deserving of death and hell, we must say, I confess that I am deserving of death and hell. What of it? And then he will say, well, then you will be lost forever. And then we say, not in the least, for I know one who suffered for me and made satisfaction for my sins. And his name is Jesus Christ, the son of God. So long as he shall live, I shall live also. This is true for you, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ to every offense that you commit before a holy and righteous God, there is the Lord Jesus Christ with a bill saying, paid in full. Nothing left for you in Christ. There is therefore now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. For the rest of eternity, there will be no condemnation for you if you are in Christ. This is why Paul could conclude this incredible text with one of the most anthemic statements he ever made about our Lord in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He put them to open shame. Jesus did not just defeat your sin. He humiliated your sin. He did not just conquer Satan. He humiliated Satan, put him to open shame. This is so important. Jesus isn't just in heaven having victory over our sin. He's gloating over our sin. He mocks our sin. He, he would mock and gloat over Satan when he attempts to try to throw our sin in our face. If you are united to Christ, my friends, listen. If you are united to Christ, that means that Satan's attempts to condemn you will be as successful as his attempts to condemn Christ. You are in him. His righteousness, his perfection, his holiness, his obedience is yours. But I have so much sin in my life. I have so many things that I do. You don't even, you don't even know the beginning of how much sin in my life. That may be. But God has canceled your record of debt. He has nailed your sin to the cross and he has wiped your account clean. And brothers and sisters, you are not gonna be the exception to this verse. There's no asterisk here. Well, unless you do this, then I don't know, you're kind of out. No qualifications, no questions, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are united to Christ. The old self has been cut away and you have been made alive as one united to Christ Jesus. That means before the sight of God, what is true of Jesus Christ is true of you. Now, I'm not saying you're God or anything, but positionally before God, what is true of Christ is true of you, meaning your fate is his fate. God could not cast you out any more than he could cast out his son. God could not condemn you any more than he could condemn his son. God could not send you to hell because to send you to hell would mean sending Christ to hell because you are one with Christ. So tell me Satan's accusations and attacks against you are not laughable. When Satan throws your sin in your face, what should you do? Mock him. Laugh at him. You are in Christ. God looks at you and he sees the beauty, purity, and holiness of his son. And he receives you because you're in his son and he will never refuse his son. Paul says that, that death, burial, resurrection, the ascension of Christ has disarmed the enemy. So now he lacks ammo and his attempts to berate you are futile. If you are in Christ, because he has triumphed over the enemy, you have triumphed over the enemy. No matter how you feel about it. See, this is why theology matters so much. Some people can say, man, I don't really like getting into all this theology. This is why theology matters so much. If I don't know who I am in Christ, then I will be swayed by any number of false teachings, which is typically why the people who say, I don't really like all that theology stuff, tend to have, they tend to be pretty susceptible to false teaching because there's nothing ground, they have no truth that they're grounded in. This is why this matters. This is why Paul wrote a very theologically dense letter to them. If I don't know what Christ has done to save me, then I'll be consumed with finding ways to justify myself. If I don't know that I've been united to Jesus, then my identity will be wrapped up in emptiness, vanity, worthless things. But knowing who we are frees us from the self-righteousness of the Judaizers. It protects us from the false teaching of the Gnostics. It strikes at the core of the rugged individualism and rampant secularism in our own culture. So LifePoint Riverdale, 
My prayer for you today truly is that you would know who you are in Christ. That you would know how great a Savior you have. And that you would know what he has done to make you right before a holy and righteous God. If you don't know Jesus, um, I can't stress to you enough how important it is that you come and talk to me or one of our team or anyone in here should be able to explain the gospel to you. Come talk to someone after the service ends. Mark on that blue card. Let us know that you want to talk about this and we will get in touch with you. We want to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. This is your only hope in life and death that you have been purchased and redeemed by Jesus Christ. Give up the fight to be good enough. Brothers and sisters, uh, right now, we're as we close, the band's going to come up, and we are going to enter a time where we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. And so we have someone in the back who's going to have uh, extra elements, extra bread, and, um, well, it's not wine. It's the fruit of the vine. <laughs> I guess, grape juice. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. So maybe you have some sin in your heart that you need to confess, not because you need to be made right before God or because you've kicked yourself out of justification. We confess our sins because we have been made right with God. See, as the people of God, we are freed in Christ to pursue righteousness and kill our sin without fear of condemnation when we fail. And so maybe you have some sin in your life you need to confess to the Lord. Um, so I want you to take a moment. The band's going to sing over us. I want you to pray where you are. Uh, again, if you need elements, make sure to identify yourself. Okay, we have some here. Last thing, um, if you are not a Christian or you have children in, in here who are not Christians, uh, the Lord God has been very, very clear to us that this is only for the people of God to take. So if you are, if, you, if you're not a member here, but you're a Christian, you can take this with us. But if you are not yet a Christian, um, absolutely do not do this with us. We want you to take the Lord's Supper with us, but first you need to learn about what it means to follow Jesus. And so we want to talk to you about that. And the next time it'll be a big party and we'll all take the Lord's Supper together. It'll be great. So let's take a moment to reflect where we are and then I'll be up in a moment and we'll take the Lord's Supper together.